0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.
1: Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll visit a substance-free home that's part of a program helping Coloradans in recovery for substance use disorders. And we'll hear more about the challenges tribal communities are facing in their efforts to have steady access to clean drinking water.
2: Our water here, it comes out some days. It's like the color of
1: the sand here. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Two decades of drought and warming temperatures have cut sharply into the Southwest's water supply. That has prompted the federal government to impose the first-ever mandatory cutbacks for some who use water from the lower Colorado River. Last fall, before the cutbacks were set to take effect in January, KUNC's Alex Hager traveled to Arizona to learn more about their impact on farms and tribal lands. Later in the show, we'll listen back to his reporting on the challenges many tribal communities face when trying to access clean drinking water and what's in store for the future of water in our region. But first, an estimated 400,000 Coloradans are in recovery for substance use disorders. In 2019, the state released a five-year plan to help people get and stay sober. A key aspect of the plan is the use of what are called recovery residences. KUNC's Stephanie Daniel tells us about the growing number of these homes and takes us into one of them, where residents live in a substance-free environment.
0: In a one-story house on a quiet street in Greeley, Julia Birdsong is giving me a tour.
2: This is my room. It has its own bathroom.
0: Birdsong is one of six women living here.
2: I'm an alcoholic, and I was living in a community setting, and I had relapsed.
0: Last September, she moved into this Oxford house, a self-supporting and drug-free home the national organization, has over 2,400 recovery houses across the country. So I've been in Oxford for over two years. I love it. It gives me purpose. Residents are required to pay rent, be employed, attend three recovery-based meetings a week, and do chores. When a potential housemate calls about a room,
2: she's got her talking points down. First I tell them it's democratically run. There's no one person who runs a the house, there's no manager of the house, and everyone has an equal say in any decision that affects the House. So we vote on everything. Each Oxford House has six
0: officers, like president or treasurer. Residents serve a six-month term, then rotate to a new position. We like individuals to feel like they have a voice and to feel like they have responsibilities. Taylor Wright is the senior outreach coordinator for Oxford House of Colorado and in recovery himself. Hey, I've actually got some
3: responsibilities that are not using drugs and it was the the best feeling in the world to me. And I like to think that's the goal of every new member that's entering an Oxford house.
0: There were 17 Oxford houses in the state in 2011. Today, there are 105, with plans to add 20 more by the end of the year. Yeah, I am the president, so um, I'll call it in order. It's at 1126. That's Lindy Reed. She and four other housemates are walking me through the weekly meeting, which is normally held on Sunday. We're gonna go ahead and, go ahead and open with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity. Reed also joined the house in September. An adult treatment court mandated she go to a sober living facility for her methamphetamine and opiate addictions. She says it was tough at first. In fact, housemate Julia Birdsong told her to be prepared to work. And it was. I hit the ground just running and wanting to help and do whatever I could to make it a more suitable place for all of us and for anybody else coming in. Reed recently celebrated 90 days of sobriety. She's looking for a job and applied to cosmetology school. I feel like I'm home here, but it took me losing everything and catching those charges to unfortunately get to where I'm at now. But I'm grateful for it. Recovery residences are growing in Colorado. In 2019, the state legislature passed a bill that created a new certifying body for them. Since then, certified recovery residences have nearly tripled. Oxford House is exempt from this certification because it's already regulated. I was an addict for 15 years before I found Oxford, so it's changed my life substantially. Deanna Darst is an outreach worker for Oxford House in northern Colorado. Oxford is successful not just because it's about being sober, but it's about living a life of recovery. She held multiple offices in her house before moving into regional and statewide leadership positions. Then she got a job working with the organization. Recently, Darst moved back into her house. It's not a requirement for staff. She just needed extra support. And so there really is that connection as well as that accountability that you find within your peers.
2: My week has gone really well. I feel like I'm really picking stuff up at work.
0: Back at the house meeting, Julia Birdsong is sharing how she's doing. Having the new job can be very stressful, but it hasn't been too bad. Birdsong and the other women can stay here as long as they want. A resident only gets kicked out if they relapse, don't pay their share of expenses or have disruptive behavior.
2: It's a grow or go program. If you're just wanting cheap rent, it's not the place for you because you are held accountable and your behavior matters. In December, Oxford
0: House of Colorado had an occupancy rate of nearly 84% and an abstinence rate of over 96%. Meeting adjourned at 1144. All in favor? Aye. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC.
1: Ongoing drought across the West and increasing demand have steadily reduced water levels in the nation's largest reservoirs, including Lake Mead. Federal officials declared a first-ever water shortage for the lower Colorado River, triggering mandatory cutbacks for some users. Those restrictions begin in January and are expected to be felt most sharply by farmers in Arizona. But in the southwest and across the nation, almost half of tribal homes already don't have steady access to clean drinking water. The Colorado River Basin is home to many of those, where families depend on bottled water trucked in from faraway cities. And even in the few communities that have seen substantive improvements, the road to getting clean water is lined with hurdles, some of which go back to the earliest days of how water in the Colorado River Basin has historically been managed. KUNC's Alex Hager reports.
4: Just outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, the city turns to desert in a matter of minutes. Office buildings and apartments give way to a dusty expanse of scrubby brush and beige plains. And here, just 30 minutes from a city with half a million people, you can't drink from kitchen faucets.
2: Our water here, it comes out. Some days it's like the color of the sand here.
4: Nora Morris was born and raised here in the Navajo community of Tohajale New Mexico. Now, she works at the senior center, where clean water arrives by truck.
2: To make sure that we're cooking with safe water, and we're also utilizing water to sanitize our, you know, our pots and pans.
4: That's the case for most of the 2,000 people who live here. Bottled water is brought in by the crate load from the Walmart in Albuquerque, but for bathing and cleaning, it's water from the city pipes.
0: On our hair, it makes it hard, and then our skin is more drier.
4: That's resident Rihanna Apacheto.
0: Sometimes it comes out orange,
3: brown, black.
4: They've had bad tap water here for decades. Mark Begay has operated the water system for more than 30 years. Five of the six wells in town have collapsed or stopped running.
0: So we're only dealing with one distribution well, so we're in a water crisis here in Toljile.
4: But a fix is coming. As far as tribal communities with bad water go, Tohajalé is one of the lucky ones. It's about to get a pipeline, connecting it to the same water system that feeds Albuquerque. From atop a hill, looking out towards the city, Begay points to where it'll run.
0: And it's gonna come that way and zigzag this way. Water
4: Water is set to flow in 2023, about 17 years after the town and Albuquerque's water department agreed to the deal. Even with support from politicians and advocacy groups, getting clean water just hasn't been easy.
2: The frustration has came from various different entities or different setbacks.
4: Sherry lynn Apache manages funding for projects in Tohajile.
2: Whether if it was a grant funding, uh, a property owner, um, land ownership, um, right-of-ways.
4: One big hurdle came from a private developer who owned land in the planned path of the pipeline. And for a time, it seemed like it could stand in the way of getting clean water to Tohajalei. But they finally struck an agreement in late 2020.
2: It's it's kind of sh- terrifying to know, like we did once upon a time own the majority of the lands and why do we have such a, a hard time regathering our land or the acreage of our
4: land to move forward. And even with permission, there's still plenty of work that needs to be done.
2: Once we receive the water, there's additional infrastructure that is needed within our community, additional funds that need to be provided, Um, additional uh, pipings need to be upgraded from the asbestos pipings.
4: And of course, all of this is expensive, especially for a community that struggles to fulfill the required matching for the grants it does receive or pay back money when it's been given as a loan. They've been able to get most of the way there with pandemic relief programs and the recently passed infrastructure bill. But Crystal Tule cordova says this is an issue that's playing out on Navajo land well beyond Tohajale and well beyond the timeline promised in the federal spending plans. She works as a hydrologist with the Navajo Nation Water Department.
0: You think about the amount, you know, almost 40 percent of people that don't have running water. It's not going to take one um, infrastructure bill to address that, and it's not going to be able to be done by the end of 2024. These are challenges that are wicked.
4: She says the core of these problems is rooted in the history of how the West was built, all the way back to the earliest days of white settlers deciding who would have access to water.
0: And when you look at the historical photos of, you know, the signing of different compacts, And what's visible there is that there was no presence of indigenous peoples participating, although they've occupied the the lands and used the water resources.
4: And with climate change shrinking the supply in the Colorado River and disproportionately harming indigenous people, working to get them clean water is only getting more important. In Tojajalé, New Mexico, I'm Alex Hager, KUNC.
1: Coming up in just a moment, we'll hear about how the mandatory water cutbacks may mean more reliance on underground water storage. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The ongoing drought in the Colorado River Basin means some are being forced to use less water for the first time ever thanks to a new federal mandate that's in effect this year. In Arizona, where the cuts will be felt the most, it means a stronger reliance on water stored underground, but it's not a long-term solution. KUNC's Alex Hager is back with more.
4: In Arizona, where the land is so often defined by the desert, there's plenty of water if you just know where to look. Is there groundwater under our feet right now? Yes. How far? Um, I'm gonna say about 200 feet. I'm in a suburban area of Phoenix with Marvin Glotfelty. He's a fourth generation Arizonan and a hydrogeologist who's worked on more than 1,000 wells, the kind that retrieves the water beneath our feet. If you had a fish tank and you filled it with sand, and then filled that sand, poured water until it went halfway up, and you could see, look through the glass, and you could see the the little pebbles, the little grains in there. And there was water in between them. That's what it looks like. And the water between those grains, some of it has been down there for 11,000 years since the Ice Age, but some of it is pumped in by humans who use underground aquifers to store excess water. The problem is, right now, it's being taken out faster than it's put back in. From my technical background, i would tell you that it's a lot of uh, water providers are pretty close to the edge, pretty close to running out sometimes, and that's really concerning. As Arizona's share from the Colorado River is reduced due to drought, they'll have less excess to store underground and will lean more on what they can store.
5: We should recognize now, as we do with the Colorado River, that we have to take action before it's too late.
4: Kathleen Ferris has made groundwater her life's work, writing some of Arizona's foundational laws on the matter in the early 1980s and later running the state's Water Resources Department.
5: We're still taking more groundwater out than's replenished. And since groundwater is a finite supply, ultimately, if you do that for over a long period of time, uh, you won't have that resource to rely on.
4: If people could only see the groundwater supply shrinking, like they can the bathtub rings left by dropping water levels in Lake Mead, she says, they might be more concerned. But until
5: then... It's a concept that's really gotten out of hand. It has become the go-to mechanism for developing.
4: Ferris says new neighborhoods are built on the promise that they can rely on groundwater for 100 years. But she's skeptical.
5: We will get to a tipping point at some point where there won't be that those renewable water supplies for to buy to replenish the groundwater pumped.
4: But she says that hasn't stopped developers.
5: These big master plan communities and these big developments, the developers don't stay a, around for a hundred years and manage what's going on. They 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 sell the land and they move on, and who is stuck with the problem? the city or the water company that serves that area and the people who live in that area.
4: As for the developers, they see things differently.
1: Well, it is sustainable for residential growth.
4: Spencer Camps works on legal issues for the Arizona Home Builders Association. He says over the years, new homes have actually helped Arizona to use water more sustainably.
3: And the two reasons that we use the same amount of water as we did in 57 is because of residential
4: growth, and conservation. Homes, he says, use less water than agriculture. And rules are in place requiring residential areas to put water back.
3: When homes are built on farmland and we retire that ag use and that ag pumping, which is unreplenished, we use less water.
4: But with Phoenix expected to grow by about a million people in the next decade, Kathleen Ferris says you can't have it both ways. It's why she's calling for updates to the groundwater laws she helped
5: to write. You can't just rely on something you did 40 years ago to solve everything. You've got to look at now the situation and figure out what to do next. And that's where we are. We're in the figuring out what to do next phase. Which comes at a
4: critical time. Drought has already forced mandatory cutbacks for some parts of Arizona using water from the Colorado River. And with climate change, water experts say even more cuts are likely to come. In Phoenix, I'm Alex Hager, KUNC. In
1: 1957, three years after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled segregated schools unconstitutional, a group of nine African-American students integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. They were met with a mob of angry white segregationists who disrupted the students' attempts to attend class for several days, ultimately requiring the presence of federal troops to get them into school for a full day. One of the students was Dr. Melba Petillo-Beals, who went on to become a successful journalist and college educator. She wrote about her experience as part of the Little Rock Nine in her memoir, Warriors Don't Cry. And last year, she spoke to the Fort Collins Rotary Club about her memoir for Black History Month. Colorado Edition's Henry Zimmerman spoke with Dr. Patillo Beals about her life story, the current age of misinformation, and how the role of youth activism has evolved in the U.S.
3: When you and your eight peers were going to integrate Central High School for the first time, what was going through your mind? What did you see and feel, and what do you remember?
6: If you want to talk about just prior to the point at which we approached a mob, We were excited. We we talked about it. We thought that it would be a new area for us. We did not think we'd be welcomed at first. There was certainly indication by mobs that had gathered on the days before that this was not the place we'd be welcomed. If you're 15 and 14 and 16, you think that in time they will see that I am human. So I thought, okay, there'll be this initial period. I expected to hear the N-word every now and then. What I did not expect was to see a mob carrying a rope, telling us off the bat that they were going to kill us, that we were not going to be going in their school. Now, that very first day, we didn't get in. A mob chased us. I only got to across the street from the school, directly in front of, huge mob. At first, my mother and I came up behind this mob. We didn't even know what's going on. And we got chased out of there with uh, these guys with their ropes and almost got killed that day, almost got hanged. And I said, oopsie, you know, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. That made me totally rethink Central High School, going to Central High School. I thought, do I really want to do this? But now there was a lot of pressure. There was Martin Luther King. There was all of these people in the NWCP surrounding us. We were now, for all intents and purposes, little individual stars who were being interviewed by the press, talked to about our obligations that kind of thing. So off we went for that second try. Second time we were, we were escorted into school by police. And that was the time that we stayed a half, we didn't even stay a half day, like up till noon almost, because outside were uh, just an incredible crowd of people. Our first day in the school that we were able to stay all day was with the 101st Airborne Division. And here I am in the middle of it. So how did I feel? I was frightened to death.
3: I wanted to ask about some of the pressures that you mentioned and the adults even trying to talk about what your obligations were as a 15-year-old student and all of your peers too. Was that easy to take in as a 15-year-old?
6: No, it was very difficult because I wanted what all 15-year-olds want. I wanted to be a normal girl. This was a painful, awful experience that really I could only talk to with the other, of, others of the nine. One historian has said that out of the nine of us, five or six are directly blood related. And so all we had for that period of time, really, was the consolation of each other. And I actually call my friend Carlotta, who has been my friend for, oh, let's say 73 years or so, every few days now. So we were all very close. We all became closer. When we come together, it's as though there were no time lapse between our being together the last time.
3: All of this that happened in Little Rock, how did that affect your appreciation of education?
6: In my family, it's the only way out. My mother made it really clear when I was young. Education is your only key out of the door as a Black person. I was adopted, as you know, by a white family. Dr. and Mrs. George McCabe. So my adopted father founded Sonoma State University. So I went from one home of educators to another home of educators. My father and mother were Quakers. That white set of parents... My father wouldn't go and see me bring home a, a bee or a, uh, like anywhere my mother was. So it was like, go from the, you know, one house to the other. He was insistent that I go to college, graduate. And so there. in my life, there is no discussion. My children will tell you there is no discussion that doesn't include how's your homework, how's school, what classes are you taking? Uh, Could I see that piece of paper, please?
3: Well, I wanted to ask a little bit about. Journalism. Since your days as a student, you became a journalist and a professor of journalism. And today we're kind of living in a time where for some reason, many people are doubtful of facts and they dismiss large swaths of the news media as biased. Do you have any thoughts as a journalism professor?
6: When you have leaders who support lying, when you have leaders who live in a different world reality, you have a problem. So we have many people who chose to follow that. I support journalism as our only pipeline. Do, do, do you pick one station and listen? No. I read the New York Times. I listen to CNN. I listen to MSNBC. I listen to uh, Fox. I look at everything. And then you, as an individual, have to decide. But you see, in order to spend the time to do that, you have to understand that you cannot look at some stupid thing on the internet and say, OK, that's who I am. I'm on. I'm whatever. For anyone to stand around and say the things that some of the people are saying in the heads it's, it's embarrassing, it's scary. What difference is there between the mobs that rampage Central High School and the mobs that rampage the Capitol? That was so scary to me because I'm one of those people. I know how the people in the Capitol felt because I've been the victim of a mob before. I've been standing in line waiting to be hanged, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand. One hopes at this point we can listen to each other and try and heal.
3: I wonder how you view youth activism when it comes to some of these issues that you were speaking about.
6: I want youth to, like when I taught, I only retired as a professor in 2014. And when I taught, one of the things I insisted on was that the children and my own children be watching the news every day. You gotta know what's going on around you. That's the first thing of activism. And then you gotta participate. Of course I'm an activist. Uh, Not long ago, John Lewis passed away, before he passed away, I have actually on my Instagram this picture of him standing behind me, and I'm in a wheelchair because I had had four spine surgeries, and he looked at me and said, hey, Melba, you ain't got time to be sick. What are you doing in that chair? You better get up and get with it. So we don't really have, I don't have time to not be an activist. Every day of my life, I'm right now thinking about the 22 election. What should I be doing? Calling people? Are we going to write letters? What are we going to do? Uh, let's get going. Let's, you know, can I do anything for with that? You gotta be with the program until I'm dead, you know, as the mortician marches out and sets my toes afire. I hope to be called an activist. I'm angry because I couldn't march further with Black Lives Matter. I was moved by that. First of all, I was put in three weeks of depression by the death of Mr. Floyd and the way he died. I'll never forget that white policeman's face as he bent that knee in as though he had power. And that's the same power I felt white people had over me when I lived in Little Rock under Jim Crow. Exactly the same power. You have the power to put your knee on my neck and press it until I die if you want to. And so for me, I cried, had to go see a therapist. I was hysterical. And I loved the marches that went on after that because when we were in Little Rock, we were so happy when the white people marched with us because it meant the cops wouldn't shoot into the crowd. Now here you have, there were more of our white sisters and brothers on the streets than us. It was a beautiful thing. And to me, it was the one big bit of evidence that we have moved forward. Other than that, at 79, I'll tell you at 15 or 16, I thought, you know, by the time I'm 50, we won't, won't. by the time I'm 79, I will be in a wheelchair, a rocking chair someplace, rocking back and forth happily, knitting, watching TV. I mean, I'm as active as I was when I was 20. It's just in a different way, you know.
1: That was Colorado Edition's Henry Zimmerman speaking with Dr. Melba Patillo beals one of the Little Rock Nine. Her memoir about her experience integrating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas is called Warriors Don't Cry. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll check in with two teachers to hear how they're contending with ever-evolving COVID measures in schools. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.